Welcome to a very special episode of Polygon's Quality Control. It's time for our regular deep dive into the latest Star Wars film. Today we're going to talk about Solo, a Star Wars story. Joining me is comics editor Susanna Polo, guides editor Dave Tack, and opinions editor Ben Kacher. It's the regular crew. Thanks everyone for joining me today. was up late watching uh, Mr. Solo, Mr. Calrissian, and the gang at my local Marcus Cinemas. Um, I actually, I nodded off during the movie, which I don't what? think was part of any lack of <laughs> energy or, in, or, or, or drama in the film itself. I think it's just because I'm, I'm old and tired. It was about 1130 when I was sitting in the movie theater, very comfortable. Um, but I kind of wanted to kick this one off here. This is, this is a unique and, and kind of a, a seminal type of Star Wars movie, and one that we're going to be seeing a lot of. Susanna, tell me more about the concept behind kind of these anthology films real quick. So the anthology films were a part of, you know, they've, they've been announced since about when Lucasfilm announced that they were, you know, making a new Star Wars trilogy after they'd been acquired by Disney. The first one we got was two years ago. It was Rogue One. And... This one is, you know, they announced it, I think, back in 2013 that it was going to be a Han Solo movie. And what's sort of unusual about this one um, compared to both Rogue One and uh, The Last Jedi is that this one is written by um, a guy with the last name of Kazdan. This was a co-project between Lawrence Kazdan, who is um, the writer of, I think, Empire and Return of the Jedi, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, and his son. And I think there's a certain extent to which, um, don't quote me on this, but I think you can Google out there, there's a certain extent to which making a Han Solo movie was one of the things that got Lawrence Kasdan to come back for um, Force Awakens um, and back sort of like into Star Wars as a franchise. Yeah, they were working on this at Lucasfilm with Lawrence Kasdan before they sold Lucasfilm to Disney. Really? This was... This was one of the earliest projects beyond the, if not the earliest project, beyond the numbered uh, Star Wars sequels. Yeah. And so the the anthology films are really like Lucas's fil- Lucasfilm's way of like having their cake and eating it too, where they, we, we're going to make this new Star Wars trilogy. We're going to further the main story of Star Wars. But everybody knows that a trilogy is only three movies long. So these are how we are going to keep a Star Wars movie coming out every year mm-hmm. or, you know, almost every year. This is how we're going to keep Star Wars going forever, or at least as long as it is financially viable, mm-hmm. which all sounds very cynical. But like genuinely, I've really I've enjoyed the anthology films. And I, as like a comic book reader, I'm totally primed to, yes, give me another story digging into a weird part of this universe. <laughs> I will eat that up. But yeah, so Solo is sort of hitting theaters under this cloud, um, kind of almost in, uh, even more so than Rogue One did, because Rogue One had its own like, Rogue One went through extensive reshoots that um, we now sort of like kind of understand significantly changed the ending of the movie. And a lot of people at the time took that to be like, oh, no, Lucasfilm is having trouble. And, you know, the, um, the, the, the company isn't really sure how to keep the, you know, like 
they're still new at making this franchise and not sure how to do it, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and Solo sort of ran into even bigger problems because about halfway through or even most of the way through its production, um, its director duo, Lord and Miller, who are um, sort of made a name for themselves making the Lego movie, were taken off the project for creative differences. And of course, we have, you know, we have a lot of like, we have some official statements that don't tell us very much, and then we have a lot of sort of like Hollywood insider buzz about how Lord and Miller's sort of improv forward approach wasn't really working, and that their experience in animation and in smaller productions hadn't left them with the chops to manage a production on the scale and with the like, you know, decisions have to be made level of a mm-hmm. big budget, like, Heavily, heavy, heavy um, special effects laid in um, Hollywood blockbuster. It's actually rumored to be among the most expensive movies ever made, in part because all of this drama, it's, it's coming in somewhere around $250 million, according to E!, and that's right up there with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince and the Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies. Oh, almost. <laughs> also, Captain America's Civil War, that little movie, very similar budget to uh, yeah. Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah, it's just it's just sort of one of those things where, like, you know, when you're making a very expensive, very special effects heavy film, you don't really have time or the, like space in a lot of, not in the literal sense, but in like a logistical sense to do 15 different takes of a scene and pick out the one that's funniest or to do a lot of improv yeah. or to, you know, sort of rely on that. The other thing I might interject in here is that like th- that insider stuff that you were talking about is uh, sounds like based on what I've read, like there was a um, basically a struggle between uh, Lawrence Kasdan and the, the you know, Lord Miller and basically it, they may have been trying to make a funnier movie or a more lighthearted movie yeah. than the script uh, and its writers intended. And it sounds to me like at a certain point, uh, the Kasdan, a Kasdan, the Kasdans flexed their muscle and Kathy Kennedy, who's the president of Lucasfilm, agreed with him. Yeah, it's all it's all sort of like insidery. We don't know for certain, but that is certainly one way like. That, that the rumors are pointing. Yeah. And the other way to read into this is that there are, or, or to try and suss out how much is c- comes from whom, right? Because there's mm-hmm. there's got to be Lord and Miller stuff in here. But the director credit is solely to Ron Howard. And, and some right. of the things I've been reading over the last couple of weeks uh, give a little insight into how that works, like what a Director's Guild of America rule would be about who mm-hmm. who gets credit when when you're a director or if somebody else comes in and, and, and directs so like you mentioned uh Rogue One uh, not long ago and what what seems to have happened there is they shot the movie and then they hired Tony Gilroy who's the guy behind the Bourne movies to come in and help uh change the story and and they did a bunch of reshoots that my understanding is he directed as well but he does. He gets a writing credit on that movie because he did. And that's of course, you know, like a different guild than the director's thing. But he gets a a co-writing screenwriter credit on Rogue One, but he doesn't get a director's credit. But with Solo, we have a different story, right? Uh, Lord and Miller have executive producer credit. They do not have director credit. Oh, that's interesting. I think it's safe to assume, you know, I don't know what the split is. 80-20, uh, th- then you can turn it over, 51-50, I don't, I don't know. 
But I think just based on that alone, it's safe to assume that uh, because there are rules in existence, what we see is mostly Ron Howard. Yeah. So what happened next after they sort of took Lord and Miller off the project is everybody freaked out for a day <laughs> um, and wrote a lot of articles about who could direct Solo. Um, and then a day later, Lucasfilm announced that Ron Howard had come aboard um, to finish off the movie, just sort of, you know, a director very much of the Spielberg and Lucas era who could come in and sort of like, you know, tie the production together, get all the actors to relax and fin- finish the movie so they could, you know, release their Han Solo prequel. And from there on, it's, you know, Lucasfilm has just sort of been very much a Ron Howard will, you know, tweet a picture of Donald Glover in a yellow cape. You know, and just like, you know, everything's okay and it's fine. And now we've finally reached the movie hitting theaters. And and this film begins in such an interesting place. And it seems kind of pedestrian almost at first, but it, mm-hmm. it begins on the planet Corellia. And this is really kind of our first time seeing life sort of from the perspective of, you know, living within the Empire. Corellia is this massive industrial world. Uh, you can see in the sky over the city. They're putting together the Star Destroyers that are so f- iconic within the Star Wars universe. And uh, and Han Solo is not in a very privileged position on this planet, is he? No. <laughs> no, he's definitely a little space David Copperfield, you know. <laughs> Well, maybe not as innocent as David Copperfield. But... He's going to make his fortune from the bottom, right? Like he yeah. didn't, he didn't come from yeah. from wealth or power. He's one of the older members of this this gang of thieves, this gang of child thieves on the city of Corellia. And I like that the way we're introduced to him is the way Han has been throughout this movie and every movie that he's ever been in, which is that he is explaining to a mob boss why he hasn't done the thing that the mob boss wanted him to do. Like, that's that's literally how we're introduced to him in A New Hope that happens in the weird beholder monster scene in Force Awakens. And it happens, like, three times in this movie alone. Yeah, it's it's a very Han thing to do. He's going to be the best pilot in the galaxy. I feel like they emphasized a lot about Han wanting to be a great pilot, but that I, I don't think that that follows in the rest of the movies, right? Like, that's part of his, like, animating desire is to be an awesome pilot. But that felt like in the original trilogy, Luke was the awesome pilot. His aspirations to be a great pilot are new, unless I'm missing something. Exactly. And his whole thing about wanting to be the best pilot was never really set up. He He wanted to be the best pilot because he wanted to be the best pilot. And it also never really paid off. He was a pretty good pilot through the whole movie. I agree completely with you, right? Like, it's a new thing, and I could buy it. I mean, you know, I believe him when he says he wants to be a great pilot. It's new information, but it doesn't, like, shatter my conception of Han Solo or anything. But but you're right that it doesn't really pay off, right? Like, even even the thing that he's known for is really because of a computer? Well, hang on. I I read it, though. I read his quest to be a great pilot, though, almost as a quest for nobility of a kind for a title right he doesn't even have a surname at the beginning of this movie and we'll get to that later on but but he just wanted to be a captain okay but there's like a way to say that without yeah it's it's i want to be a captain <laughs> not i want to be a great pilot here's my sort of general feeling about solo a star wars story and that is i know a lot of people i think a, a lot of friends of mine 
heard oh, they're making a Han Solo prequel movie and went, God, I don't care. I love Han. I don't need to know anything more about mm-hmm. him. Like anything that you could tell me about him is just going to make like it's the it's just going to remove the mystique and he's not like he's not going to be as cool as he was and i just I, like i'm just uninterested i would rather hear about almost any other star wars character it's almost like the movie nobody asked for and my, yeah and my sort of like voice of like you should reconsider to those folks having seen the movie and ha- with very low expectations um is that it doesn't really matter that Han isn't really interesting in this movie because I found everyone around him to be very compelling and interesting. And you can just glom onto any of those other characters and follow them through the movie instead. Well, I think the way uh, uh, in a couple of different interviews, Lawrence Kasdan talked about this movie and sort of, I don't know, not not exactly directly. I, I don't remember anybody saying, why are you making this movie and how are you going to screw up Han Solo? But the thing Kasdan said in multiple interviews is that it's not the movie you think it is, number one. And number two, that like the, the his goal with this movie was to explain how he became the person he is when we first meet him in A New Hope. Like that was that was the goal. And I don't feel I don't feel like the movie did that. <laughs> and okay, I think those two claims are are kind of bullshit. I mean this wasn't it wasn't a bad movie. I really enjoyed this. I went to see a Star War. It was a good Star War. My kids and I enjoyed it. We walked out really happy with the experience. But when he says that, number one, it was the movie I was expecting. Absolutely. And number two, I'm not sure we learned anything new about yeah. Han Solo. We walked in and we saw a character doing things we would expect Han Solo to do and that made us like him as a character. I feel like I got one piece of insight, and I don't mean to like drop my insight at the very at the relative beginning of the podcast, but I feel like if there is one bit of Han Solo that this movie informs, it is Force Awakens Han Solo. Hmm. It is the Han Solo who when Ray says, I didn't think there would be you could put so much green in one place in the whole galaxy. And he looks at her and goes, Oh sh- she's me. She just got off a planet. She thinks she needs to go back when she really doesn't. And she's really good at ships. Oh, God, she's me. I need to offer her a job and I need to give her a blaster because that's what Beckett did for me. Oh, God, oh, God, I have a new child. Like that feel it feels like this movie informs that Han and and the Han that I know from the new expanded universe novels the Han whose retirement is who's like pre everything getting messed up retirement like you know when Leia is still a politician and Ben is still a kid is running a racing circuit that he knows is safe where he's mentoring young pilots from you know weird planets all over the galaxy and it's a han who like sort of gets to a comfortable position comfortable position in his life isn't smuggling anymore and goes well what i'm going to do is i'm going to help kids rise above their circumstances like that i feel like is what this movie informs for me it does not inform han sitting in a Mos Eisley cantina like boasting that he has the fastest ship in the galaxy what it also shows to me, though, is a Han Solo who is getting his heart broken in, in just the most incredibly tragic way um, there at the kind of the Imperial 
the Imperial TSA, I guess. Uh, and, and that is in the form of, of his, his girlfriend and his, his love, uh, played by Amelia Clark, Mother of Dragons, and that's <laughs> Kira. What did you guys think of Kira's character in the early part of this film? I didn't buy 100% into Kira until the end of the film. They did yes. what I was, I was really hoping that they were going to do with her. And at that point, I was like, okay, yes, good. Bought in 100% here for it want to read a novel like it's funny how well that worked because i had the same reaction i wasn't sure who she was or like necessarily what her point was in inside of the story because i feel like she did a lot of awkward smiling for most of the story and i just Mm -hmm. knew that i couldn't trust her at the end it sort of retroactively justifies why she was doing what she was doing but she again did spend a lot of time like smiling awkwardly yeah it's like there's this whole thing where this character is introduced and they like someone that we like, so we feel sympathetic towards them, but it's they don't have a lot of setup, so it's almost like they're just there to be arm candy. It's not really explained why they like each other so much. And then later, yeah. not to jump ahead, but it, it seems like she's the property of another male character. And she has these conversations with Han where she's like, I can't tell you things that I've done, you would treat me different. And he says he doesn't care. And we think in his head, he's like, I know what life is like. I know what you have to do to survive. I can imagine all these things that you've done. But like, no, it turns out she had this entire other life with agency and choices. And she's in league with a Sith Lord. (laughs) And that was like a great reveal. And it turns out this entire time, She was a character with motivations and not just someone we're supposed to look at and go, yep, that's Khaleesi. And now I I know I've jumped ahead through the entire movie, so we can just uh, go ahead and shut down the entire podcast. Thank you. Yeah, as as, as soon as she was like, oh, I'm second in command to the big bad, I was like, oh, she better murder him and take his job by the end of this movie. Like, that is, please let that be the end for this character. And it's a very Star Wars like motif isn't it the sith have masters and apprentices and they're partners until the apprentice gets strong enough to take down the master you know and and the cycle repeats yeah god and and i was just expecting that like he was going to wind up dead in the crossfire and that she would take over like out of like you know she would just slide into the power vacuum but to have her actually like murder him with a sword was more than i could have asked for and also to have the movie confirm that they are not sexually involved, because I was really worried that they were just going to leave that ambiguous, because um, otherwise the movie definitely implies it, and I was uncomfortable with that. Now, of course, we're talking about Kira and, Dry- and Dryden Voss. They're they're so handsy, and he's so like, man- like clearly manipulative of her. That, like, in, in another movie, it's so easy for that to slide into, oh, he's also sexually abusing her. Or he's, they're also, they're also in a, a manipulative and abusive, like, intimate relationship. And I was very happy when, like, she, you know, tells Han, like, no, I'm not with him. He just, uh, like, owns me in a non-intimate sense, like, in a business sense. Okay. No, I missed that part. That is kind of good. But, yeah, I'm with you, Susanna, that it was super interesting that through this whole thing we have all these assumptions. But, yeah, it turned out she is 
completely her own character. I was re- I was really prepared for the movie to turn all of that subtle stuff into a confirmation, and I was glad that it went in the went the other way instead. I, I think that their journeys are parallel, right? Like Han did what he had to do to get off the planet, and she did what she had to do to get off the planet. Yeah, her, hers took her in a particular direction. Han's was was different, but. Han was very much willing to say, look, life got in the way. Let's pick up where we left off. Yeah, I mean, they're both still criminals at the end of the movie. She's just a more successful criminal. Yeah, and she was a more successful criminal through this whole thing than he ever was. (laughs) But that kind of brings me to another (laughs) issue I have with this movie. And it's such a Star Wars issue, right? Is that we have this whole big galaxy and then it turns out in a relatively short amount of time these two characters bump into yeah. each other yeah. again it it just makes the entirety of space feel so small space seems really small in star wars it really does and if we're going to jump all the way ahead to this i have i had the same problem i'm like obviously kira is going to be here in this damn spaceship with dryden voss and boop there she comes right up from off screen oh hey how are you it would have required in a sense kind of that same kind of diversion uh that the last jedi took to the casino right like it would have it would have required some other minor narrative miracle <laughs> all you have to do is establish that the mob boss they're working for on Corellia is a part of the black sun network like and then you can just assume that kira rose through the ranks oh see thank you susanna your headcanon is much better <laughs> than what i saw there in the movie theater i appreciate that now i'm just going to stick with that <laughs> <laughs> And let me correct myself. The name of the of of the mob organization in this movie is the Black Dawn, not the Red Sun. Or is it the Red Dawn and the other one is the Black Sun? Star Wars. Why did why did we decide to name these two things this way? Dearest listeners of Quality Control, Vox just launched a new show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and you can find it on Netflix right now. It's for people like you, people who are curious about the world around them. And here's our promise. If you give us 15 minutes of your time, or sometimes 20, sometimes we can stick to the 15-minute limit. So 15 to 20 minutes of your time will take you from being just curious about a big, important topic to actually understanding it. Our first few episodes explore things like... Why is monogamy so important around the world? What happens when we can actually edit our DNA and take control of our own evolution? Why is the racial wealth gap in America still growing? You'll see it's Vox to its core. It's a bigger and more ambitious yes, but still looking and feeling and sounding like us. And we'll hopefully give you the context and reporting and research that actually makes these super, super satisfying. I think the most satisfying videos we've ever made. So go to Netflix and check it out. You can search for it. You can search for Vox or you can just go to Netflix.com slash explained. And it's frustrating because I think there's there's a way around that instead of going, oh, I want to be a great pilot. I want to be a great pilot. My goal is to be this incredible pilot. And then we kind of skip over the entirety of his time learning to be a pilot and, you know, getting busted down to infantry. You can just say, you know, my my dad built these ships and I want to fly one and then make it a class issue instead of a skills issue. You know, he grew up on a world where people built ships for other people. And I can see him wanting to escape and have his own ship and fly a ship instead of building it. Yeah. 
And I think that works. Even at the end, when he says his his father built this sort of Corellian ships that the Millennium Falcon is one of. And there's that really good moment. But the connection to the character is there. It's just tap danced around through this thing of, I want to be such a great pilot. Yeah, you're totally right. That aside about how his dad built built Millennium Falcons, like, that's super compelling. That's your end to the character right there. I don't want to build ships. I want to fly them. I want to own one. Mm. It's also very Star Wars. That That's yeah. important. Yeah. Well, the, the the movie starts picking up characters left and right, um, but it but it takes a little while, right? We we get Kira on board, and then we leave Kira behind, kind of at the border, as she's left there, as he he gets his way off planet, and very quickly Han enters Ben, as you said, the the Imperial Flight School, where he he does well. It's it's understood, but then yeah, he he screws something up. He pisses somebody off, and he gets busted down to infantry. I, he got busted completely out of the Imperial Navy into the Imperial Army, which is you must have done something real bad to do that. Right. I think that I think the way they said it was that he had problems with authority or whatever. Yeah, no kidding. And like yeah. like that fits in with Han Solo. I could see that. But it it was this it was this incredible little miniature war story within this larger heist movie i was completely blown away to like be in the trenches on some muddy planet fighting this war against an anonymous enemy right we never see who they're fighting which is such a nice touch oh it was it was unbelievable and you have these these bloviating lieutenants and corporals who are leading them into battle and just get completely annihilated. Guys, it felt so much like watching Warhammer 40,000, the movie. <laughs> like, it was the Imperial Guard, right? All these Imperial Guard troops had come from the hive city of Necromunda. They were all scum, hive scummers from way below in the lower levels of this planet and uh, conscripted into the service and Han's only way out is to join in with these these pirates that he uncovers amidst the ranks of other soldiers. What did you think about this little twist? Just to talk about this scene, it's it's interesting that Han is like, we are the invading force here. We we have the ATSTs. We are not the good guys. Yeah, and it it, it speaks to his character as like this is not a like I was a little I wondered initially whether, like, wait a minute, was Han on the side of the Empire and his character arc is going to be about uh, disassociating himself from that? But I, that's not what it was. Like, again, a means to an end. This is how he had to get out. And Han Solo is is chaotic good, right? That's where we're going to put him on the D&D alignment scale. All right. That, that's fair. I think that's a 20-minute discussion we could have, but I won't I won't dive us into it. Yeah, I'm with Susanna there. And one of the things about this scene, we have we have Ron Howard directing and he's you know, of course, a very Spielbergian director. Mm -hmm. And he's he's a very talented guy and you can tell through this whole thing that he's seen saving Private Ryan so many times. So we have this visually beautiful trench warfare scene set in Star Wars where the ATSCs are coming down and there's the trench warfare and people are dying left and right and it's a, it's a beautifully shot scene and it's really compelling and I just remember thinking I would watch you know like an entire version of Band of Brothers set in the Star Wars universe that scene was just so well done and it ended up being such a, a small part of the film 
But also my my continued gripe though with with the stormtroopers is why wasn't Han a stormtrooper? Where did this weird and incredibly large rank of imperial soldiers come from? Mud troopers, they're called, Charlie. <clears throat> Mud troopers, clearly. And also, <clears throat> why were the stormtroopers the one? working as, like, the TSA security in Corellia. Why aren't they in the trenches fighting the bad... I, mm, mm. I don't understand mm. how that army gets anything done. Sorry. I, I just... I feel like maybe the, my, my headcanon for that off the top of my head is that, like, this is truly the gruntiest of grunt work. Like, the mud troopers are called that because they do the crappiest stuff. So they get the crappiest assignments. Well, it's clear that they're there to die. They they run at the guns and they die. This is Star Wars by way of Gallipoli. Yeah. Cannon fodder. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I think I think it speaks to Han's character that he was busted down from the Navy into infantry and he's still whining about ethics. <laughs> <laughs> like, he hasn't shut up about it. He hasn't learned. Like Yeah, so... Okay. All right. So... Woody Harrelson's character shows up, uh, not to take away Charlie's job moving the podcast along, but... No, no, no. Woody Harrelson's <laughs> character basically says, I am here to move the plot along. You, white male, come with me. And Woody Harrelson's character, so-and-so Beckett, is like, he's the human MacGuffin. Right? When the plot needs to be moved along, he is there to explain to you <laughs> Why it needs to be moved along. He's like that emotionally, too, because he never stops telling Han not to trust anyone. But he starts out the movie yeah. with, like, a girlfriend and, like, plans to retire in, like, a little smuggler family. And Yeah, I think this is as close as we get to uh, the idea that this is a movie about how Han Solo became the guy that we saw, right? It's like, I mean, this is really the compelling thing for him is that by the end of the movie, he mm, kind no, never mind. I talked myself right out of that. I was going to say he kind of becomes the guy <laughs> who doesn't trust, except that's completely wrong. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there a line when Han was translating Chewbacca where he even says, I don't know if he yes. said tribe or family right. and yeah. Beckett says does it matter? Yeah, Beckett was one of those characters where I'm just like, I just have to pretend, I just have to pretend that I'm in a different, I'm in a parallel universe where you made sense in order to enjoy this movie. I just have to forget that you are here to enjoy this movie. I guess if nothing else, he gives him a template for a smuggler, right? Like, yeah. even if he doesn't take his advice to never trust anybody, which, which frankly serves most in the plot as a, hey, by the way, I'm talking about me as well see the end of the movie but like right he is he is sort of the the woody harrelson's character is sort of the mold the smuggler mold that that han solo becomes although in this movie we see how han branches off from that which is he likes the ideal of, of being a smuggler and doing a train job and you know doing that kind of stuff but with the heart of gold yeah there yeah like that that's really it because like there's some tweaks you could make to beckett to like make him make a little bit more sense and because what you really like what you really need like if if you know Kazan is right and this is about explaining how Han Solo became the guy we saw in A New Hope what it really is a story is about how this like idealistic guy who's like I'm gonna get off my planet I'm gonna get out I'm gonna become a pilot I'm not you know I'm gonna get out of this and he winds up being a guy who is ultimately like 
and in, in, until the end of New Hope, like very much about like I am motivated by money. Mm-hmm. And I don't care about your cause. And I don't care about, you know, doing something. I want to know how it benefits me and not anybody else, specifically me. Um, and to, if this had, if Beckett had been tweaked in a little ways, I think Solo would feel much more like a movie about a guy who has to swallow his idealism in order to survive. As Kira says, it's just you're a good guy. Like you want to do right by people. And you want mm-hmm. ever you want things to turn out okay. You don't want to, like he like he doesn't want to be a betrayer, and he doesn't want yeah. to be somebody who gets power and uses it to put other people down. And so to like to watch him sort of realize that he has to do that, that he's surrounded by people who do that routinely and easily, um, and to realize that in order to in order to not like just be a mud trooper, he has to do that. Like that. I think maybe is what they were trying to do with Beckett, but it just it like Beckett is inconsistent enough that it just doesn't work. It is again a means to an end, right? All, yeah. Take take a look at the kid we met at the beginning of the movie, and he wants to be a pilot, and he wants to be off of his planet, and he has problems with authority. Picture Han Solo at the end of this movie, a guy who has his own plane. Uh, a, a Wookiee buddy or a Wookiee buddy, as the guy with four arms kept saying, and it drove me crazy. Uh, <laughs> but that's just me. Uh, I love that guy, though. Yeah, he was cool. Uh, really? Like, I- I- isn't this the whole thing? Yeah. Okay, we can talk about that in, in a sec. But like, the, I guess all I'm really trying to say is, mm-hmm. ultimately, if the Empire was a means to an end to getting off the planet, then hooking up with the smuggler was a means to an end to... To, well, not not just to get off the planet, I should say, to become an awesome pilot, right? Uh, right. Which is sort of his central goal beyond, you know, being with the, the mother of dragons. But, like, this is another, this is a, he, he recognizes this as the opportunity when he meets Woody Harrelson on the battlefield to do what he, to, to get him to where he wants to be. Which is, again, a, a pilot being awesome. I want to think yeah. that... To the, the inconsistencies that we see with Tobias Beckett, which is Woody Harrelson's character. These, Thank you, Charlie. Is, is, is an artifact of this movie's history with the multiple development crews, and the multiple directors, right? I think we're seeing in Tobias Beckett's portrayal this weird splicing together of two very different movies, and in addition, though, I think that I want to think that Tandy Newton's Val Beckett, which is Tobias's wife in this little smuggler gang, her fridging early in the movie, I also mm-hmm. want to think is an artifact of this movie's troubled history because she gets so little screen time, so little time spent on her. I was terribly interested to know that Tandy Newton was in this movie and then she's just wiped away. Yeah. And Beckett doesn't care almost. He pops Han Solo in the face when it when it happens and he moves on. And that was yeah. bizarre to me. And it's never really yeah. addressed and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't move anyone's emotional arc forward, but it's like we got a lot of characters, we we got to get rid of some. Just to give uh, an alternate take. You could be right, Charlie. I, yeah. I'm not saying that you're not but my guess, and, and until I'm proven otherwise, is that this movie is the Lawrence Kasdan movie that Lawrence Kasdan wrote. My guess is the movie that we saw is closer to the script than Lord and Miller wanted to do it. We can speculate about like a oh, which scene was directed by who and all that stuff, but we're like at a certain point, like 
we're never going to know. And then, like, those discussions are often as much about, like, you know, your own personal bias about what you think was good or bad. I'm just, like, saying as someone who, like, observed a lot of conversations about, like, Justice League and which parts of it were Scott, which parts of it were... Um, the, the parts we like are Joss Whedon and the parts we Right, which like. parts were Whedon and, like, and, and that that, you know, that's not that, like, and I've watched that discussion go on and just been like, uh, it's like, it's just like two toddlers slapping each other, like... <laughs> it's a good frame know. of reference, though, right? Because that yeah. movie was definitely two movies exactly, bolted yeah. onto each other. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. this one, I think, you know, prove, but I may be proven wrong, but this one, I think, is probably far closer to the script with Ron Howard behind it than, than it otherwise would have been. And it chugged along at a good clip. This did not feel like a clunky, no. inelegant movie. It moved. It's an action movie, right? It's, I mean, through and through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the action set pieces were always very soberly directed. You could always tell what was going on. That's a Ron Howard thing, right, Ben? Yeah, we were we were talking about this before. If your movie is on fire <laughs> and you need to call in a competent director who is going to take the pieces and put together a good-looking movie. And this is a good-looking movie. Sure. This is this is an easy movie to watch. You know, you 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 call Ron Howard, and th- this is the most Ron Howard ass movie I've ever seen, and that's that's not an insult because you see really well respected directors move into this sort of thing and just destroy the sense of pacing and space and continuity and action scenes, and this does not. Yeah, especially when, like I said, it's a it, considering it's an action movie, right? There's a near infinite amount of ways to get lost in the action. And Ron Howard being such a, this is going to sound like less of a compliment than I intend, but such a competent filmmaker that I, that, you know, you can you can see his hand there. I mean, yeah, I, I think Ron Howard fell in love with his drone shots. There were a lot of those really pulled back wide drone from the air angles that he kind of bit from last jedi but i mean if that's his biggest weakness great and i think that's one of the reasons why i liked this movie so much it was easy to watch you could follow the action you can just lean back and things are presented to you in a way that looks good and makes sense and Doing that in a film this big is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. So we're talking about, like, Danny Newton's character, great, really mad that she died, um, especially in a franchise that has very few roles for women of color. Um, she seemed like a real badass, would have liked her to stick around longer. Um, it's also really sad that uh, that forearmed guy bit it. They they really got you into those characters very quickly. And there's, a, there's definitely a moment where I went, oh, no, the reason why we like them so much is because they're about to murder them. <laughs> so uh, death in a movie is often happens for a reason, right? Like we, we're not just killing this person for the sake of killing this person. We're doing it to advance the plot, to have a character change in some way because of the death or whatever. Ideally, Dave. Like, right. Ideally. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I'm not sure that either of those deaths really shot people in different trajectories here. Nah. But I guess killing them meant that Beckett, Woody Harrelson, uh, needed to pick up Han and Chewie for a new crew. 
and we we did have Mr. Forearms who looks at Han and says, don't die alone. This is <laughs> the theme of the film. You should care about other people. And I'm going to die now because I'm really expensive to have on screen <laughs> with all the CGI. That's yeah. totally not the theme of the movie, though. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what it feels like when you know he turns and gives... Han Solo, his his dying speech about not dying alone. And okay, this might be a, a piddly point in the scheme of things. And you, you can you can argue about Scarlet Witch's power in the MCU because it's just all over the place. But blaster bolts in Star Wars make no sense. They will either annoy you for ten seconds, kill you, go straight through you and increase your force powers somehow. It's like, what the shit is happening with these guns? Every blaster in Star Wars is loaded with plot bullets. Yeah, is that not true for cinematic bullets, though? Right? I feel like there are all of these times. I feel like there are all of these times in Star Wars where someone's like shot in the shoulder and it just kind of annoys them for a few seconds and and then they're it's bandaged up and they're fine. Well, Ben, maybe there's some alien biology here that we're not taking into account. <laughs> his heart is in his shoulder, Ben. He's got four hearts in each of his four shoulders. And they all have to work perfectly for him to stay upright. It's it's very complicated. Yeah, I think yeah, I I think you're right, but it's it's really blatant in in Star Wars where you know someone someone dies and you go oh they, in that case they got hit by the the script bullet yep. cuz you know there's there's a scene where where Beckett gets shot in the shoulder and then he, he's fine and then later on in the movie he's he's shot again and you know in just a few seconds he dies of his injuries now one of the very difficult things that this movie had to do though it had to do it was get Han Solo and Chewbacca together. Ah. And they did it surprisingly early, I think. And they did it in a really interesting way by making those two stormtroopers kind of kind of throw Han Solo to the beast and who ends up being the beast but the mighty Chewbacca. Like what did you guys think of this structure? I fell for this so hard. Like, like it was, it, the moment that the reveal happened, I was like, of course that's the beast. But I was not prepared. Yeah, no, the moment the growling happened, I went, oh, because I realized what was about to happen. But I, lo I love that inversion because, you know, we've seen Luke thrown to the rancor. We've mm -hmm. seen, you know, Obi-Wan and Anakin and Padme thrown into the arena for the end. Like, this is definitely like a thing that has happened to mm -hmm. multiple Star Wars heroes. And then for it to just be a muddy Chewbacca at the end was so cute. And who knew that Han could speak? Who knew that Han could speak Wookiee all yeah, this time? Yeah, I think this is my favorite scene in the movie, at, at least as we record this, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, there's always a thing, it's hard to even describe, but like, we knew that Han and Chewie, we've known forever that Han and Chewie got together at some point, but it was never nailed down, right? We never had the factual, canonical story of how that happened. In a movie, anyway. Right. And when it's your responsibility to come up with that, that's a lot of weight uh, to, to carry on your shoulders. And I, I remember listening to a, a Lawrence Kasdan interview where he was he politely said, basically, that one of the problems with the prequels was that uh, they 
Lucas uh, missed opportunities to make introductions as meaningful as they could have been. The example that I think of is the the first meeting between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker is literally a handshake and an introduction. <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi, meet Anakin Skywalker. Hello. Hey, and, and, how right? Are you? And like mm. it's not bad, yeah. but there's a way to uh to to make that more interesting. The Force Awakens, for example, the reintroduction of the Millennium Falcon is a great example of that, right? Where you make the introduction of an important character feel important inside of the story. Uh, I think that the Chewbacca thing is, is very much hits the, oh, this feels important. This feels interesting. This, this is a, not just a first meeting handshake, but a memorable first meeting. So Tobias Beckett turns Han Solo in. Stormtroopers take him, and they're about to throw him to Chewbacca. I think maybe they do throw him into the pit. And then the stormtroopers look at each other, and they say, oh, yeah, he's really hungry, too. He hasn't eaten in three days. Guys, does Chewbacca eat people? (laughs) No. You know, he might have had to if if it was his, his role up to that point to be the the starving monster who eats people. This is like a weird, dark, strange backstory now for Chewbacca that happens before this movie, right? Like that 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 was so strange to me to consider that Chewbacca eats people. <laughs> I'm sure sh- I'm sure if they if they return to that, they will establish that he does not. <laughs> and here's another thing about the whole: has Chewbacca spent the past? Six months killing and eating sentient beings kick. It's Han Solo has spent three years in, in the Imperial forces and it's all kind of glossed over. Like during that time, he's probably had to do some like really bad shit invading other people's planets and carrying out mm-hmm. the right. orders of really bad people. And it's it's all kind of glossed over, but there there has to be some really, really scary stories in there that if we were to know them or if they were shown, would actually really hurt the movie's ability to put these people and these characters forward as sympathetic to the audience. I I think you almost have to skip over it and hand wave it away. Yeah, don't think about it. Just be amused right now at the fact that Han Solo and Chewbacca are handcuffed together. (laughs) We're doing that. (laughs) I loved that. I love the handcuff trope. To get back to the direction of Ron Howard, it, it doesn't matter if you use an old idea, if you execute it well. And Ron Howard often uses really old ideas, but executes them very well and this was funny i chuckled my kids liked it it was a, it was a really easy way to set up the rapport between the characters yeah it was it was good yeah so that i mean obviously getting chewbacca into the story getting chewbacca and han solo together terribly important terribly difficult they nailed it the other really difficult part of this movie for everybody involved though was getting han solo together with Lando Calrissian. Donald Glover is is having a moment as it as it's been described in the media right now with all of his music and his his other movie stuff coming out, but man, I thought he did a hell of a job as Lando Calrissian. I think it was another great introduction. This is a moment where two characters we already know meet each other for the first time and I think they did it well. And I think the thing I like the most about it is that Donald Glover does not spend this movie doing a Billy D Williams impression. 
but you hear him off screen before you see him. And he is definitely doing the sort of Billy D. Williams, uh, you know, smoky voiced sort of thing. And he, he drops that, I think, it, for most of the rest of the movie. But you identify who this character is just by sound first. And I love that. It almost felt like you could feel the character of Lando Calrissian almost exploring what it means to be that persona that he would ultimately have as Lando Calrissian. I don't know how else to describe it. It just it felt like Lando Calrissian puberty. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> there there were definitely moments I feel like Donald Glover was like leaning into doing an impression versus acting. And it was eerie how good it was. I think it would have been distracting if he did it for the entire performance. But Whenever he goes for it, it works so well. It is uncanny. He did a super great job. All the chatter before the movie about how we need a Lando standalone movie was completely right. I, I can't say enough good things. It, it was like almost worth seeing the movie for. He was amazing. Yeah, he makes he makes Lando like he, he keeps Lando being just like as fun as Lando is, and he also makes him like. Like, the the script allows him to also play Lando as, like, a vulnerable person who cares about stuff. Which we get, you know, we we know that he is that guy. Eventually, like, by the end of Empire and, like, going through into Jedi. But, like, you get to see Lando, like, lose stuff that he really cares about. And and that I, that I really enjoyed, I think. Yeah, Lando doesn't have a real big character arc, right? Like, he sort of... Yeah. Lando starts as Lando, which is cool. Right. This isn't this isn't the movie where that needs to happen. Uh, but it, he did such a good job that there was no I had a somewhat difficult time connecting. Uh, Alden Ehrenreich was a uh, I had a tough time connecting him to Harrison Ford. Uh, I did not have a tough time connecting Donald Glover to Billy D. Williams. And I liked how with how the movie slowly rolled out the hints that Lando is not actually as on top of his shit as he pretends to be. <laughs> like that the Millennium Falcon has been has been like curb locked and that and that his you know his his co pilot is this this really intractable robot. Well now let's talk about L three. L three three seven. Before we get there, can can I just say that the that the treatment of uh Lando calling Han uh Ha, or calling Han Han, Han. Yeah. like they 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 canonized that and boy did I love that <laughs> and does anyone else like if okay Lando seems like a guy who really cares when he wins a card game right he drops this idea that Han has this ship that is owed to him fairly quickly you think like if he saw through it and knew it was BS you think that would be a bigger deal but they're like, we're going to hire you to be a pilot. And he's like, don't you have this awesome ship that I actually own? Like, that is never... Did anyone else think that was weird? Am I... I think I think once it became clear to him that, like, that ship didn't exist and that they were actually here to recruit him for a job and it was a job that he wanted to do, I think he, like, you know... I got the sense he just, like, he's like, oh, okay, you're an idiot. I don't have to, like... <laughs> do you think it's almost like... I, he knew he was cheating himself, obviously. Yeah. Do you, th that do you think too. it's more like he saw another scoundrel or oh, yeah. cheater and went fair yeah. play? Like game recognizes game. Exactly. Yeah. I was just about to say. <laughs> we both we both had a hand. We pushed in. Mine was based on cheating. Yours was bullshit. 
fair play. Let's work on this other thing that's actually real. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Plot hole fixed by our headcanon. Perfect. <laughs> now, Lando Calrissian, though, has has L337, Leet, as the kids say it these days, uh, voiced and uh, I imagine performed to some extent by uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. But the, Lando and L3 have a relationship? Like, well, no, they don't. She says that they don't, that she's never let it get that far because they're not compatible. <laughs> but but she also says that, like, like there's a question of how does that work? And she says, trust me, it can work. Trust me, it works. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's something going uh, on. God, the the um the moment where he he gets up and he's like, "Can I get you anything?" and she says, "Equal rights immediately." <laughs> I turned to the friend that was also in my press screening. We both turned to each other at the same time and whisper screamed like theater whisper, "I love her!" At each other at exactly the same time. My daughter had the same reaction. She glommed onto that character so hard, and for every scene, like. All of that landed with the audience, I think. It was really cool to see. Yeah. So I was also mad that she died. First, like, first, like, prominent female droid in Star Wars history. And she also has to, you know, eat it. But I will live. Yeah, but there's an example of what I was talking about earlier, which is that this death directly led to something, right? Yes. Like, she essentially becomes the Falcon. She lives as the Falcon. I have... So many problems with that. Oh, okay. So we have okay. <laughs> let's let's put the 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 corners on this house. We have a droid who believes that like droids are sentient beings and they shouldn't be taken advantage of, and her ultimate fate is to be lobotomized. And her brainstem mm-hmm. is used as a means to tell a ship where to go. That, my friends, is messed up. And yep. it's never remarked on. This zombie brain of this proud, independent character is the thing that lets Han Solo be a great pilot. Messed up. Super yeah. messed up. The Star Wars universe is not ready to confront its uh, droid racism. Um, no. That's one of, like one of the things that I that like that like idly you know I play around with. Them, I'm like I don't. That's the thing that I don't expect the franchise to do anytime soon. But I'm like, man, it would be super interesting if they did. I don't know how they would do it and make it still feel like a Star Wars movie. But like, when is the droid rebellion coming? Okay, like we saw a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, 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 there's, there's stuff. Like, once you dig into like what droids actually are in Star Wars, it just becomes more and more horrific. And it's certainly not a thing that the the franchise that like is you're supposed to, I think, dig that far into. Like, it's a universe where people have droids and also slaves. Like, you would think that one of those would have made the other one obsolete in one way or the other, but. Um, in some of the in like in the Poe Dameron comics that sort of take place right before Force Awakens, um, it's revealed that C three PO has become like spy master of a network of droid spies. <laughs> which sounds like that sounds sounds like oh like that doesn't sound like C three PO at all, but like he he does it from the three PO. He does it all. He does all of that organizing from the very. We serve the masters orientation that 3PO has. 
And so it's just like that three, it's like that 3PO tone and that 3PO position of we are here to serve. But he's talking about agents in the field whose lives are in danger and whose memories can be ripped out of their minds and then they can be reprogrammed to serve the enemy. Like, that's horrifying. There's also this weird thing going on in the background of a lot of the modern Star Wars comics and the last couple of Star Wars movies where you've got these humans running around with the tops of their heads missing. And it, there's just like this tray placed yes. there with some blinky lights. Those people are like lobotomized human androids as well. There's some, there's some messed up stuff in the background of Star Wars right now. Yeah. Well, it's, I, mean, I think we started that with Lobot, right, in, in yeah. Empire. And there was even, yeah. like, so we know, we are both shown and told that Lando cares about this droid, right? It's like a thing. Like, he has feelings for this droid. If not romantic, they are close. Thank you for confirming that for me, Ben, because I also totally read, like, when, when L3 jokes about it, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is a cute joke. But when Lando runs into open fire to recover her body, mm-hmm. yeah. like, I was like, oh, she was right. I think it works better as an open question. Like, did, did he have romantic feelings? Did he not? We'll never know now. But before then, they, they were talking about wiping brains, I think, and he was like, yeah, She's like sassy, but I can't wipe her brain because she has all of these navigational mm-hmm. charts. And I'm like, that's the reason you don't do it. Like, yep. Out, outside yep. of what she can do for you, you would lobotomize her and then just like, okay, he's having his cake and eating it too. I like bet that's it. just what you tell your friends when I'm not uh-huh. around. Maybe, Lando. yeah. <laughs> he just he just wanted to seem cool and like he didn't care yeah lando just doesn't want to admit his real like tumblr feelings about droid rights (laughs) now anyway yeah but like but like no droid mo like i would totally wipe her brain i'm not into that like (laughs) susanna (laughs) Um, but yes thank you for I'm sorry. I'm, no, I do apologize. But thank you for agreeing with me that he's totally into her. Oh, he's totally into her. That's not that's not subtle. They have a relationship of some kind. Now, we talked about a lot of the heavy lifting that this movie had to do already. But perhaps one of the more important things, I think, for Star Wars fandom that this movie needed to do was establish what the Kessel Run is is and i think that this was just really the climactic uh center of this movie this whole sequence where they're they're going through this misty uh, uh nebula and and running the kessel run what did you guys think about this entire sequence of special effects here at the climax of the movie well for starters they didn't need to show this what like- the Star, Wars, the Star Wars universe was fine with the Kessel Run and Parsecs just being a bullshit line. There was a one billion percent chance that this was going to be in the movie from its inception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, I don't, so much of Solo, like, explained things that never needed explaining. That just were fine the way they were. Like, the Millennium Falcon was one in a card game. Great. Do we really need to see it? Probably not. Well, that's the danger of prequels, is it not? Right? It is. Like, you can screw up by by saying things, by, by, by inventing things that don't feel right or by making weird decisions. 
You mean like uh, having uh, Leia remember her mom and yes. Luke not, and then yeah. having yeah. Luke born first? And mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. it, 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 exactly right. Rogue One, be, <laughs> Rogue One being the exception to this problem, right? Which is that fits in really well. It's a it's a hard needle to thread because you can go off on other tangents and explore different aspects of this character or realizing that you're spending whatever 250 million dollars on a movie. You can hit the plot points we already know and show interactions that happen just as we imagine them. It's just reinforcing stuff we already know. And it was it's a really fun movie. It was great to watch, but my God, everything was expected. And they finally explained the Kessel Run and the Parsex thing, and uh, it just didn't need it. Oh, I can I cannot disagree with you more. I, I get why they oh have my gosh. it. But <laughs> it, it gave it gave finally, you know, in this movie for, for Hansa to literally show off his piloting skills, right? He does some incredible stuff, but also it was this great um Part of the overall heist where they've got to, you know, get the little eyedropper and put the the hyper fuel into the reactor and boom, it gets them out of this gravity well. Oh. It's also the first time that Chewie sits in the co-pilot seat. Oh, yeah. really? Um, it's okay. the formation of their, like, piloting relationship on the Millennium Falcon. It, it, it was just an, an excellent crucible and it gave us a, a space battle maybe not a battle a space adventure in in outer space with ships that we've really not seen before. and with a giant monster yeah yeah there's something new that's some like that's some like episode one stuff where they bring up the random yeah. giant monster yeah. that yeah, i was yeah. i was super into it because it's like you're you're that's the the black hole inside of this swirling mass yeah. of the planet core. The, yeah, and <laughs> it, it's like the, oh, the maelstrom they called it, and then yeah, and, and then, then the like maw. this eldritch horror from the deep comes out of nowhere, and I am like, I am feeling this Cthulhu thing you're doing way out of left field. This is super cool. <laughs> Um, the thing I think the thing that I that I like most about putting the castle run in the movie um, and that I was not expecting to like because my like I don't know I didn't read any of the EU novels and just the way that like I'd always I was like ah oh, they're gonna put it in and it's gonna be like oh well he you know was the best at this race that everyone does and like now he brags about it forever and it's like and and oh we fixed this you know continuity problem from the first movie by making it this whole convoluted other thing. Because we decided it was really important that the science be right in our movie with laser swords. But the thing that I really liked about it is that it turns out it's not a race. It's not a thing that everybody does. Nobody, it was only a thing that they had to do because their plan had failed in 17 different ways. <laughs> and they were about to die. Mm-hmm. And no one was there to see it. It's not a famous thing that Han did. It's just a really cool. It's like it's like one time I caught five M and M's in my mouth at the same time. Like, and he won't shut up about it. And that is the most Han Solo thing that I think I can think of. Is that he's just been telling people for years that he did the Kessel Run in less than twelve parsecs with no evidence. And the way he says it to Obi-Wan is like, oh, well, you should know this already. Like, if you know anything, you know that the Millennium Falcon is the ship that made the Kessel Run in tw- under 12 parsecs, which he didn't even, by the way, like, Chewie corrects him yep. about it. Like, that is so, that is so the Han Solo that I, that is the Han Solo I know from A New Hope. Like, that's 
pitch perfect. He's already rounding the parsecs down. Yes. Like yeah. the, the minute after he's finished. <laughs> and, and okay, here's like the, the overall thing that I think is interesting about Han Solo. And we've touched on it a little bit. He's bad at everything he does. Mm-hmm. He's not, he's not particularly talented or clever or good at stealing or an okay smuggler. His entire life is defined by the things he fails to do. He fails upwards as a human being. He fails upwards. Every time we meet him through like the chunks of this story he's in, he's in the process of trying to fix something else he messed up. And he's able to do good work on the side of gangsters trying to kill him. Because he couldn't do the thing he said he was going to do. Like, the gangsters aren't wrong. He doesn't deliver the things he promises, like, ever. He's bad. He's just <laughs> not very good. And I wish the mo- I wish the movie would be like, Han Solo, dude, you're just not very good. Like, it's okay to be a mediocre dude. And you're there. You try so hard. You never succeed. Just swoop in when no one's expecting you and save the day. It's the only thing you can do. Yeah, arguably his only plan that works without a hitch is the very final one in the movie um, where he scams um, Beckett and he scams uh, Dryden. Dryden Voss, yes. Played by Paul Bettany. Yeah, where he scams everybody except um, the alien Vuvalini and gives them the spaceship fuel. Before we move on to like the climax and the ending of this thing where there is a lot to talk about, frankly, any any of the characters, any of the portrayals that we that we skipped over and didn't give enough time to, guys? I think I think we should uh we should just spare a moment for our buddy Chewbacca, who in this movie is I think the first time I've ever seen him be treated like an actual character and not like a dog that Han has. Amen. Chewie has a goal established really like early in the movie that doesn't have anything to do with Han's goals where he's like the Empire took over my planet and I want to find other Wookiees out there and like band together with them and you know try to get our planet back and then he also like abandons their mission in the middle of the heist because there are there are enslaved Wookiees in you know in this mine and he needs to go help them and then at the sort of the end of that whole bit he makes you know as as Lando is having his whole like shit rocked Wookie, ma- Wookie <laughs> Jesus Chewbacca makes his own choice to that like I look I have to stick with is it a tribe or is it a family? I have to stick with these people that I promised I would do a thing. And when he, like, presses his forehead against that other Wookiee, I got really sad. Oh. I don't know. I was really touched by it. And I'm happy for my son, Chewbacca, that somebody's finally treating him like a character. <laughs> my beautiful furry boy, Chewbacca. Yeah. Guys, sadly, I think this is exactly the part where I nodded off. I missed that intimate moment between the two Wookiees. Seriously? Damn it, I gotta go back and see this movie it's, again. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really nice moment. And yeah. I think Chewbacca does... It's kind of the same thing that, that Kira does, where it's like, we're set up to think this character went on a really predictable linear path. And no, they have this entire story we don't know about in, you know, agency over their lives that we didn't assume and plans that actually don't have anything to do with these main characters. We still, at the end of the movie, don't really know what Kira's endgame is or how she got there. And I think that's super cool. I was almost disappointed when it ended the first time I saw it. And then, like, now the the further I get from it, even though it's only been a day, I'm like, no, that was 
kind of badass. Yeah, and I like the sort of ambiguousness where, like, you don't know necessarily the gender of the other Wookiee or Wookiees, and you don't know whether Chewie, like, has seen, knows these Wookiees, or if they're just, he's just like, Wookiees, I gotta go help them. And I just, like, I really liked, I really liked the potential of that. There's a lot of aspects, things in this movie that I'm like, I'm excited, instead of, like, being exhausted by the idea of, like, God, why didn't they explain that? Like, why do I have to go read a novel in order to figure out what this was about? There are a lot of aspects of this movie where I'm like, I'm excited to get a novel about that. Like, I'm excited to read a comic book series that gives me more context on this. And if we want to take that, as if we want to segue into the end of the movie, uh, on that list of things I really want a novel about is, um, still can't remember her name, but the uh, the space pirate who turns out to have been a lady all along yes. at the end of this movie. Enfys Nest, and it's played by Miss Erin Kellyman. Man, that was a revelation. The way I understood it, though, Susanna, is she was the daughter of the woman from earlier in the movie? I thought what? When, she took the, when she took the mask off, part of the reason that I gasped so loudly in the theater is because I thought that she was, they were revealing that she was Beckett's daughter. Um, I don't think that is actually what happened. It was just I saw a actress of mixed racial descent and a you know biracial couple and was like, oh my gosh. But no, I, I'm pretty sure that she's she does make a reference in the movie to her mother. Okay, but there's no I don't think there's any indication in the movie that that it wasn't her the whole time. Okay, you know what I mean. I think it's clear that her mother at one point wore that mask. Is what the implication is, but not necessarily that we saw her mother in the movie. Regardless, a beautiful actor, a beautiful face. What an exceptional casting for that role. I absolutely want to know more about where Enfys Nest comes from and see more of Aaron Kellerman on screen. Oh my goodness, that yeah. whole that whole thing of setting up this like. Re- ridiculously badass group of marauders and the music that they got oh so good and then the revelation of who each one is on a planet that the empire controls and then as if all of this wasn't good enough my boy warwick davis comes out of nowhere (laughs) and i'm like i'm like yeah that was that was such people in the theater were super into it i thought that was just great that entire scene Ugh. Really yeah, good. That, that whole group just to me echoes the motorcycle grandmas in Fury Road, and I'm totally cool with that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. So good. So there's double crossing. There's uh, more double crossing, and ultimately, you know, Han Solo ends up giving the hyperfuel to Enfys Nest, and this this fringe group that's going to take it to the rebellion, and that's how. You know, the, the, the two stories, the stories of Han Solo and the mainline Star Wars trilogy start to intersect. What did you guys think of, of kind of closing that loop in that way? I think it was, a, it was sort of a fine way to, like, remind everybody what Star Wars is about without making it feel like this movie was getting dragged into a different genre. You know what I mean? Okay. And without sort of, like, diminishing, like, the importance of, like... Han's current sphere of view, which is most very, like, criminal underbelly based and not, like, like, Han isn't out here to solve the Empire as a problem. And I think if this movie had been about him doing that, it would have felt really like putting the cart before the horse. But the idea that he, like, 
after everything that he's been through, could look at this group of people who are like, hey, um, we've really been like fucked over. Um, you could either give your ill-gotten gains to the bad guys or you could give it to the good guys. And it just echoes like Kira's, you know, when she tells him that she's a good guy, it's almost her ex- explanation of why they can't be together. So you're saying the implication there was her saying that she's a bad guy. It's like, I'm a villain and you're not. So this isn't going to work. Is is that is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's a really interesting take on that. And, yeah. and not like with the slant of like, oh, I'm evil we sh- and you're good. We shouldn't be together. But that I'm comfortable with doing things that you're not. And that means that we should not be together. That's the whole like you're the good guy thing. And, like, he may cringe at that, but it is as much her saying, I am not the good guy, as it is her saying, you yeah. are. And it's him not believing her, too. It's him mm-hmm. It's him continually, like, like saying to himself, oh, well, like, you don't mean, like, you're, you know, you're not evaluating. Like, no, Kira, you're so nice. Like, you're Kira. I love you, so you must be nice. Like, he's doing very much the, like, like... He's projecting his image of her onto her without listening to her when she says, like, Han, I've been through a lot and I'm not the same person. But I also don't really want to tell you that I'm not the same person because I need you to believe in me right now so that I can kill my boss and take all of his stuff. Exactly. She's working an angle. And doesn't does he or doesn't he say when she says that, I don't care? I think he, he I, I've, as I recall, he insists that he's not actually a good guy. But I thought there was a scene where, where she was like, I've, I've done all these things. Yes. You don't know who I am. And he's like, I yeah. don't care. Yeah, that's earlier in the movie. I think that's in the cape room. <laughs> yeah, with Lando's amazing array of capes. But that's like a whole nother thing, right? She's saying, like, this is my journey and it might not have taken you to a place you're comfortable with. Yeah. And instead of going, I accept you anyway, he's kind of saying, I'm going to erase it and assume that you're where I am. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe stop and listen to what she's saying, because her trajectory ultimately does not match his. He doesn't he doesn't even pull her into his orbit. She does go off and do whatever her master plan was with Darth Maul and taking the yacht like he doesn't he's not in as control of her as I think he thinks he is through the whole movie. Yeah. You just uh, you just kind of spilled the beans there. Obviously, if you've made it this far into the podcast, you've seen the whole movie, and you've found out that Dryden Voss's boss, Kira's big boss, is actually none other than Darth Maul. He is the leader of the Crimson Dawn criminal syndicate. And um, I don't know. I don't know, guys. I kind of cringed when I saw Darth Maul showing up in that hologram. I, it, Why is that? It was hard for me to stomach. I think, Dave, and I'm going to go with my gut here and say that it's mm-hmm. I have this uh, unabiding distaste for the, 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 the original, the, mm. the first three movies that George Lucas should never have made and, and should be banned, I think, uh, and burned. Um, <laughs> there, but I said you, it. If, if you go back and rewatch episode one, and by the way, don't. I'm not... Oh, I'm, God. I, I, I'm saying rhetorically... Like, Darth Maul was a badass character who got mm-hmm. the best choreographed fight scene to this day yep. in the history yeah. of the series. Um, he died in a kind of BS way. I understand why they use the rule of badassery to bring him back. And I absolutely think he's a part of the series that can be redeemed by a good director. Like, 
Darth Maul was gold through all of episode one, I think. This requires a lot of work, so I understand if people aren't familiar with it. But if you watch The Clone Wars, this is not, this is a continuation of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Darth, yep. Darth Maul, or Maul, as he's credited in this movie, it, it didn't die in, in episode one like like it seemed, right? Like, he, he came back and he worked his way out of that. And the, I mean, if you look at his legs in this movie, like, that's the version of Darth Maul we got. I think I would have reacted pretty strongly in a what kind of way in the theater like if i hadn't if i didn't know i was like oh yeah well like he shows up in clone wars and he shows up in rebels and you know which happens after this and like oh okay yeah like it like if i wasn't aware that there had been some not behind the scenes but for an audience that only watches the movies some behind the scenes work to sort of bring him back and that this wasn't if this had been my first indication that Darth Maul didn't die when he was literally cut in half and thrown down a big hole, I probably would be a lot more like, this is bull about it. <laughs> um, and so I can understand, like, I can understand if a lot of people walk, in, walk out of this movie and go, what the f*** was that? <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds of it where, like, it's like, well, if you're not following all that stuff, this is going to seem real weird. Um, but if you are following all that stuff, like, it's cool to see. And I think that there's definitely potential for that character in that role i don't know if it seems a little like a lot for one scene at the end of a movie in a, in a movie where we don't know if they're making like a sequel you know like this feels very much like thanos showing up at the end of avengers <laughs> in 2012 like to indicate that like oh there's this whole extra you know there's a whole extra bit of story out here that we might get to someday um and but without like you know with with considering this is a standalone movie it's i think it it doesn't make a good standalone movie moment. Yeah, there was this weird moment at the end of the movie when Kira goes riding off into the sunset and Darth Maul is introduced. Where I'm like, well, wait, are, are we setting up Han Solo 2, The Revenge of Han Solo? Like, I, I didn't need it to be so open-ended. I'm not sure that it was necessary. I think it could have closed narratively in a, in a much more succinct way and you know, been a good break and then off to Tatooine. See, I I disagree. I think it worked on both levels. Like, I feel like it told a complete story. And if we find out that on the average, Han Solo will do the right thing, and on the average, Kira will do the evil thing, the idea that they separate and go mm -hmm. off into space to do their own thing works as a final end to that story. Yeah, I think w mm -hmm. what we see at the beginning of the movie is that they are on the same page, and by the end of the movie, they, they, are they veered off in different directions. That's the point. I think narratively. And I think that works as a standalone movie. That being said, if they do a sequel exploring more about these characters, I am in. Like, I can mm -hmm. see that going both ways, and I'm mm -hmm. down for whichever one they choose. Yeah, because they've set Han, they set Han and Chewie up in a way, too, where they're like, oh, we're going to go talk to Jabba the Hutt. Um, but, like, there's no way that that directly leads into the job that they did for Jabba that went bad right before A New Hope. Like, there's, like, at least 10 years of continuity in between those two. And so, like, there is, you know, there is a Han working for Jabba the Hutt movie, like, that could be, you know, that, like, there is room for that, you know, between this and A New Hope. There's room for them to explore that if they wanted to. Yeah, like, Han... Han and Chewie Space Adventures is a series of films you could write, I think, infinitely. 
you know, or, or even a TV show. Yeah, exactly. There was there was one scene in the movie, and I don't. I made a note to bring this up, and I didn't even know where to put it in the discussion. Where uh, Han Solo is backing up into the Millennium Falcon, and he's shooting his blaster, and the screen is like pitch black, other than when his face is illuminated by the blaster bolts. It stood out as this beautiful shot among the rest of this very workmanlike movie. Hmm. And it it almost made me sad because, like, Ron Howard is this incredibly talented guy. I don't want to take away from his work at all. But I think that's what you lose when you go with someone like Ron Howard is that ability to transcend the material and show you something truly beautiful that I think this film reached for. And I don't want to guess who did that shot because like Susanna said, it's a losing game, but like, that's the one moment I think it achieved it. And like imagining a star Wars movie that's filled with those moments just makes my heartache. Like, I really hope we get a director who can do that. God knows that Disney is going to try and give you more of those moments though, Ben, (laughs) we've got a lot of new, uh, yeah, hashtag content coming in the Star Wars universe <laughs> here. There are there is yeah. news just yesterday or the day before that there yeah, is. Yeah, going... no, as we were less than twenty four hours. Oh, before that the Recording wow. of this podcast. Yeah. Um, yes, late yesterday evening, about six o'clock, Lucasfilm announced that they are going ahead with they have they announced the subject of their third anthology film um, that was announced back. You know, when they announced Rogue One and when they announced Han Solo. And they finally confirmed after years of very very consistent rumors that it is going to be about Boba Fett. Someone else who's very bad at their job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and to sort of complete that announcement, they also announced um, a the director for it, who is James Mangold, who is the guy who wrote, co-wrote or wrote, anyway, worked on writing and directed Logan which was a Academy Award-nominated film for its screenplay, and now he's being given Boba Fett's story. And was a visually beautiful film. Like, that version of Wolverine pops, and it works. Like, I'm not telling anyone anything they didn't know, but that's a very exciting director to have working on this property, I think. There's also two new trilogies coming and a TV show. What do we know about this stuff, Susanna? Um, I don't know that we know much about the TV show, or but that might just be my memory. And... Well, there's John. It's John Favreau that is right. in charge. They gave a timeline of when it takes place, right? And it's post Return of the Jedi. Okay, no, that that checks out. Right, and then Ryan Johnson's trilogy is. I mean, we can imagine it's probably going to be set. I think set after the current trilogy that's going on. So after Finn and oh, Ray and Poe. It is seven years before Return of the Jedi. The TV show. For the TV show. Okay. Oh, Um, my God. Seven years after. I'm sorry. You're right right the first time. Good talk. You need a whiteboard to figure out this timeline anymore. (laughs) I can't fit. When did... Darth Maul die and that's mm. yeah. that's a, a Venn diagram. Well, we have actually. we uh. have some po- we have a post on Polygon right now explaining Darth Maul's life and what we know about it from Star Wars canon. You can go check it out. But yeah, and then I think the there's the Benny Benioff and Weiss, the Game of Thrones guys, that they are making their own trilogy. Which all we really know about that is that it's also not going to be a like main story trilogy. And that's kind of that's kind of where we are. Um, I, I think we have enough precedent 
to basically say, like, this is how Star Wars works, right? There's yeah. a trilogy, and in between, yeah. there are these standalone movies. And I don't think that this Han Solo movie, movie poisoned the well. I think no. that this no. Han Solo movie is an excellent exercise. I think it was a great fun ride and i i think that they're gonna they're gonna do well with these anthology movies guys yeah, yeah. like the the thing the thing for me about solo sort of overall and that i've been like saying to people is that like we've just been the last two star wars movies we've been handed have been very like envelope pushing movies for the franchise last jedi is really contentious for how it sort of like it does a lot of work to try and redefine like mm-hmm. what star wars is about like what what the core like tropes of Star Wars are like dynasty and like good and evil and stuff like that and then like Rogue One is this very much like we're going to turn Star Wars upside down and we're going to tell a story about the people that you never would have heard of while you were paying attention to the heroes of the trilogy um, but that were very important to like everything that happened in it. And Han Solo is doing not, none of that. It's just a fun action movie yeah. set in the Star Wars. And if, like, yeah. set in the Star Wars universe. And, like, and I think that in the context of, like, the rest of the franchise being very, like, postmodern takes on Star Wars, it's okay to have a movie that's just spaceships and lasers and monsters yeah. um, but- and betraying each other. The thing I think is interesting about that, because this, this is such a, in some ways fun fluffy kind of light movie outside of the hyper dark things in there if you scratch beneath the surface is that like we know the han solo story we know where this leads we are looking at a man who in a lot of ways is damned he has a few good years he does not succeed in his marriage he loses his son he's murdered by his son that's the end of the character we are watching mm-hmm. someone go through adventures and we know there is no happy ending waiting for him. And looking at it through that lens gives it a weird sort of heaviness because mm-hmm. Han Solo dies with all of his goals unfulfilled. Anyway. I'm really <laughs> sad now. <Jesus> no. <laughs> no. That's, yeah. that's the arc of the character. He might have had a few good years with Leia before that fell apart, but overall he stayed basically a scam art artist always afraid he was going to die when the next deal goes bad he doesn't reconnect with his with his son he doesn't reconnect with his wife he dies murdered alone on a this planet it's but this ridiculous. one time he did score four touchdowns for polk high school which <laughs> complete the cats around in 12 parsecs and when he gets really drunk, that's all you hear about. <laughs> the glory days and the Kessel Run. Yeah, and then Chewbacca just, like, tips him over his shoulder and drags him back to the ship. <laughs> and tucks him in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess the one thing I have to say is, is, is sort of my overview of how I felt, which is I, I was worried because it seemed to me that there were four million ways to do this movie wrong and about six ways to do it right. Like there was, it was just, it was a minefield. And while I do not think that I walked away from this movie with a deeper understanding of the character of Han Solo, but I still liked it. It was fine. Right. Like it was, it wasn't, you know, like, and I know it sounds like I'm damning with faint praise by saying it's fine, but like. Susanna, the, to, to your point, that it's fun to just have it's just fun to have a Star Wars movie, just a romp, yeah. 
Like that's fine. Yeah. Like it, it's cool. It's this is did not grab me by the heart like so many other Star Wars movies did, but it certainly did not ruin anything for me. Yeah, it's it's a perfect like it's a perfect it's the perfect it's the antho- it's an anthology film. This is what they're supposed yeah. to do, mm-hmm. right. you know, and it's it's fine. And I think there's a, there's a there's a chance. I'm not even sure if it's an outside chance, but the, I mean the end of this movie does set up a path to take this forward somewhere, uh, uh-huh. which could be interesting. And that's and that's the thing I think I, I really want to get across because when you do podcasts like this with a group of people who are super into Star Wars, it's like sure we're gonna pour water in it to see where the cracks are, <laughs> and, and like it it ends up being more criticism than praise. Even though I, I think we have a good amount of praise in here, mm-hmm. but I felt going into this movie like I was doing homework, like I had to see it on opening night because I'm doing a podcast the next day. <laughs> this movie had this we movie live rough had lives. yeah. Lives. This movie yeah. had me within 10 minutes. I was like, nope, I'm in it. This is good. Like, that weight that I thought from the promotional schedule and not being interested in the trailers went away so quickly. It's a fun Star Wars movie. Sure. I, yeah. I mean, there's also the, 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 the thing about how the last Star Wars movie was like six months ago, which is wild yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the span of Star Wars. So that, like, there is a thing, and I don't want to sound like an idiot, but I'm... I'm but there is genuinely a thing in me where, I, like, I don't want necessarily less Star Wars, but the more Star Wars you give me, especially if you do it within six months, the less special Star Wars feels in some way. Now, it's it, this is not a six-month... I, do, I don't have that complaint about the MCU, for example. I, I'm lining up to see all of the movies. Um, but there is something about Star Wars that for the better part of four decades... You only got some movies, and now we live in a world where we're going to get a steady stream of them. And it does, it does sort of, just by its nature of having more, take a little bit of specialness away. And there, you know, you compound that with my fear that like there were a lot of ways to do this wrong. And I was, I found myself in a position that like I felt like it was proof that we live in an alternate universe because I, I actually forgot that yesterday was Thursday. And I was going to go see a new Star Wars movie. And, like, uh, speak to me at any time in my life from about the time I was 13. And that would seem ridiculous. But but here yeah. we are, you know, in, in a place where I saw it. And I didn't absolutely love it. But, boy, did I not have problems like people have with the prequels, which I am on record as, as being a defender of. Uh, not that they're as good as the originals, but I still like them. Um, and I certainly did not have the, the the negative reaction to this that I did with The Last Jedi. So, like, it was fun, and I'm cool with that. It feels definitely like after this one, though, the training wheels are off, and the Star Wars properties must stop becoming this incestuous loop of kind of telling stories about the same people. Yeah. That is never going to happen. It's never going to happen. <laughs> nope. We're making a Boba Fett movie. Boba like... Fett is going to be a different story, guys. It's going to no. it's going to show so. us it will other parts of this universe, other stories so. in this universe. That will that will happen with 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 new trilogies that aren't Skywalker saga trilogies, but I will eat my hat if they don't <laughs> strike a deal with you and McGregor and make him play Obi-Wan at whatever age he is right now. Like it's going to happen. Oh, that would be so good. <laughs> I do have a positive take on the Boba Fett movie. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Uh, Boba Fett's cool. Yeah. My positive take on the Boba Fett movie is the first half of it is one. It'll be the first Star Wars movie where, where the, the core lead, like the solo, the main character is a character of color. 
unless Lucasfilm really screws it up, and I honestly don't think they will. Like, Tamora Morrison is Pacific Islander. He played Jango Fett. Boba Fett is a clone of Jango Fett. Like, there is not really getting around the fact that the lead character, the name, the person who the movie is named after, is going to be not a white guy. And that's, you know, that's still progress for Star Wars. And I think the the second thing of that is that if they don't, what is still can the most of Boba Fett's backstory is not like the sort of reams of backstories that he got in the expanded universe and like surviving the Sarlacc and all that stuff, not canon anymore. But what remains canon is a lot of really compelling work that the Clone Wars series did and Rebels did to make the clone troopers really interesting and compelling mm-hmm. and, and sort of give them all this sense of like brotherhood and um, and of connection. And if a Boba Fett movie doesn't tap into that and like examine that and should, take yeah. that as a foundation for itself, like it's leaving like really good stuff on the yeah. table. And like Boba Fett is a character who like he's the quintessential character of he looks awesome so he got more attention yeah right like he was not we didn't we didn't find out about Bubba Fett from some giant backstory we found out about him because he looked amazing in a movie and they figured out a way to make him uh, a compelling character no over... no that's that's incorrect <laughs> they introduce him no at, I in mean a... the, the, the holiday special and the, there was the animated <laughs> doesn't really catch. there is the animated part of the holiday special where they bring in Boba Fett and actually it's not a bad animation and they were setting up people to get ready to buy the toy. They were selling his image long before that movie came out. Well, exactly. You're not dragon. wrong. It's it's just that he is not. Yes, Charlie. Like you're not wrong. It's just that like he became compelling because he, you know, in part because they were selling his image, and they've managed to create something uh, cool out of that. Uh, and uh, you know, like the, the the there's a lot of, for example, in the Clone Wars, there's a lot of bounty hunter like story arcs and. This is one of the things that I think uh, Star Wars has always, it, it, well, it now has the potential to do. I guess it always did. But, like, we don't have to. Look, this is a Star Wars uh, story without lightsabers, Solo is, right? Like, we didn't get any of that. And, you, and if you can make, this this universe is interesting, and you can tell interesting stories without the Jedi. I don't think that you always should, or that you, you should leave that behind. But, like... A, a, a bounty hunter arc thing would be super cool. Like, because, the, you know, interesting heist stories like that can be a lot of fun. And the other thing that I think is interesting coming out of Solo, way more excited about the greater Star Wars universe than I was going in, which is weird because I'm such a super fan. But, like, this really sold me on the idea of all these side stories is that Star Wars has, like, finally climbed out of what I call the aliens hole, where people are like, Look at Aliens as a franchise. It's really powerful. And I was like, there were two good mm. movies, one mm. okay movie, and 16 <laughs> movies. <laughs> Aliens yeah. is not a powerful franchise. Your rose-colored glasses this mm-hmm. so hard. We've gotten to the point where there are way more good Star Wars movies than bad Star Wars movies. And, like, I think that's super cool, personally. And it, it's the the weight of how much good stuff they have to work with now and the talent of the director's they're bringing in it's like it's it's still after years of getting these movies very odd to feel this optimistic about star wars when we spent so many years getting like you know on tonight bluntly by 
really poor work. It's it's great how much good Star Wars work there is now. Guys, I just realized something. Instead of saying no droid mo, I should have said no robo. <sighs> well, despite that, Susanna, um, I do so enjoy getting together with you guys uh, every year, every six months now to talk about these Star Wars movies. Thank you for taking so much time out of your day to, to be here on Quality Control. I Let's do it again soon. Media Podcast Network.